This is the To The Point Podcast. Together with our ERISA attorney, we'll explore key Affordable Care Act and trending compliance topics, all in 15 minutes or less. Now here's our host, Sarah Gillespie. Welcome to another To The Point Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. We are rounding out the year, one of our last podcasts for 2020, and I have Stacey Barrow joining me again. Hey, Stacey. Hey, Sarah. And we wanted to use this opportunity to do sort of a 2020 compliance roundup of sorts and then sort of a look forward to 2021. So we're, like I said, we're almost to the end of 2020. I'm sure that is something that many of us are probably happy to see since it has been a tough year to say the least. Um, Employers have had to face challenges they have never seen before and quickly adapt to operating a business during a pandemic while also navigating new legislation because of the pandemic. And then of course we had a little thing called an election. So uh, we thought it might be helpful to review some of the most significant compliance events of 2020 and then take a look forward to 2021. So Stacey, can you walk through some of the major benefits events that happened this year? Sure. Um, Well, thanks for having me here again. Um, So quite a year, Um, certainly from a benefits perspective, I think all of our changes are really um, in reaction to COVID-19. There are some that are legislative changes and some are are sub-regulatory, but I'll I'll go through a couple of the the highlights here. Um, So first and foremost, as part of the the CARES Act, we have uh, the coverage of diagnostic testing for COVID-19. Um, all group health plans have to cover that with no cost sharing, at least the testing. Um, and we are seeing a lot of plans actually cover the treatment as well with no cost sharing. Um, I know a handful of, of states um, have, uh, or carriers and states have started uh, um, doing that kind of uh, approach for their participants. Um, So that will last um, through the national emergency, um, uh, which we'll also talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, Then we also have uh, some guidance with respect to health savings accounts and telemedicine. Um, And this is also as part of the CARES Act. Um, The CARES Act created this temporary safe harbor for no-cost telemedicine to coexist with health savings accounts. Um, Under this temporary safe harbor, you can provide free uh, telemedicine programs to employees in your high-deductible health plans, and it won't disrupt their HSA eligibility. Prior to this guidance and without this temporary safe harbor, um, arguably the um, uh, an, an employee's HSA eligibility would be jeopardized or disrupted if they have access to this uh, cost-free telemedicine services. Um, and so, you know, clearly that's what the IRS thinks. Otherwise, we wouldn't have needed this safe harbor. So it also gives us a little more certainty around how the IRS really feels about no-cost telemedicine and its impact on HSA eligibility. Outside of this safe harbor, it's clear that um, it would disrupt HSA eligibility. Um, another change is with regard to account-based plans like health FSAs and health reimbursement arrangements and health savings accounts. They can now reimburse over-the-counter drugs and certain feminine products. 
without a prescription. That's a permanent change um, under the CARES Act, uh, permanently changes that um, ACA-related prohibition on those types of reimbursements. Um, and so now, um, really, the, the main piece is the over-the-counter drugs accessible now through a health FSA. Um, the other piece of legislative relief after the or before the CARES Act was the FFCRA, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, and that gave us two paid sick leave provisions. Those are also kind of the big um, changes for this year, benefit events. It is temporary or they, that, that leave is temporary, although there has been talk of it getting extended. It may not be until January, but um, I think it's likely that the emergency paid sick leave at 80 hours of leave and that expanded FMLA leave will also get extended uh, into 2021. Um, we'll have to see if, if Congress acts on that in the new session. Um, and then some other benefits events that we experienced was the concept of this outbreak period, this national emergency and the corresponding outbreak period. And this um, basically gave plans and participants some relief with respect to meeting notice deadlines and enrollment deadlines for certain types of events. Um, but it's it's pretty expansive and it and it provides both plans and employees some some relief here and, and it basically gives it gives employers the ability to communicate electronically with employees as long as they reasonably believe that they can access the material. Uh, they have some um, permissiveness on the notice requirements. Um, the timeliness of that for the time being. And then likewise, participants also have um, their timeframes to request things like HIPAA special enrollments um, extended during this, this outbreak period. So the, the national emergency and the outbreak period, it began March 1st of 2020, and it is continuing to this day. Um, and it shows no sign of ending prior to the end of the year and will probably continue on into 2021. Um, we'll maybe talk about that in, in a second, but you know, as it stands today at least, um, being in the outbreak period, employees still have time to request HIPAA special enrollments, which are for birth of a child, uh, for enrollment getting due to getting married or losing other coverage. Uh, both of these or all of these events have various nuances in terms of how they are administered, but employees essentially have extra time to notify the plan of an event occurring within the national emergency or during the national emergency and in the subsequent outbreak period. Um, this also includes additional time to elect COBRA and pay the COBRA premiums, although it doesn't require the employer to keep COBRA active for employees. Uh, COBRA can still be terminated for, for non-payment of premiums. You just may need to, to be able to um, retroactively reinstate coverage if you have someone who says, you know, I, I was late on my, you know, September payment or whatever it is, um, you know, they will have additional time because of this outbreak period. 
Um, and these are all mandatory for group health plans and carriers uh, to abide by. There was some additional relief that is voluntary for employers to adopt, and that gives them flexibility to allow employees to make election changes mid-year without having to experience um, a, a change in status event. Um, employers can just basically, for the remainder of 2020, ever since about mid-April when this guidance was released, um, allow employees to drop coverage. If they no longer want it during the year, they could change plans, they could join the plan as long as the carrier agrees. And then the employer has to, of course, offer this opportunity to all participants and amend their, their cafeteria plan to reflect that. But in light of the, the disaster, the IRS is being much more flexible here for 2020. So those are kind of the big plan benefit changes, benefit plan changes for um, for 2020. We, ex we, we expect to see some more guidance next year for wellness rules. Maybe we'll talk about that for a minute, but let me kick it back to you, Sarah, just to maybe see if you want to jump in with any questions or well, I think the questions that I had are probably going to segue very well into our conversation about 2021 because, you know, you mentioned um, first that FFCRA leave possibly being extended and then also that outbreak period. I would guess, you know, I don't know any of the people who made these rules, but I would guess that they were almost sure that all of this would be done by the end of the year. And of course, all of those things, a plan relief and participant relief um, related to the outbreak period were supposed to expire by December 31st. So that being the case, what do you think is going to happen in 2021 since we're still very much still in this outbreak period? You know, not only are we we're in the outbreak period, our, the national emergency hasn't even ended yet. And then the outbreak period is another 60 days after that. Um, so one of the interesting things about the, the the outbreak period is that under ERISA, the maximum amount of time the Department of Labor can effectuate these extensions is one year. And then the regular time frames will begin to um, take effect again. So unless there is some legislative change it seems to me that the, the the drop dead kind of end date of any extension would be February 28th of 2021. Um, you know, just that that year would need to be disregarded. And then, of you know, even though we probably will be in some level of emergency in March of 2021, the extensions from last year will need to um it, you know, the, the, the time will need to begin ticking again. That's my understanding of how that rule works. And I think it's Section 518 of ERISA. I haven't seen the, you know, the Department of Labor issue any guidance on it yet. I'm hoping that when it comes closer to March, they'll say, you know, and by the way, um, the, you know, the, 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 um, extensions created by this national emergency do come to an end at the end of February, and so plan sponsors should act accordingly. I don't know if we'll see that guidance, but um, that's my understanding of how it's going to work. 
So does it is it either the Department of Labor issues new guidance or the legislation has to be renewed or repassed or is is it like one or the other? No, it's not. It's not something I, don't, I think it's, it's not something that can be changed by regulation. Um, ERISA would have to be amended. It's not about uh, you know, the CARES Act or the FFCRA leave. It's Section 518 of ERISA that, that explains how the government can only um, issue these extensions for a year. And then the plan is able to kind of pick back up with, with its normal operation. Um, and so it would have to be something like either ERISA gets amended or maybe a new emergency is declared. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, that period of time from March 1st of 2020 for 12 months, that, you know, that that extension should come to an end. And then any time frames that were being delayed would, would then begin to you know, or accrue or continue um, as of March 1st. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, that certainly makes sense. And I would assume that they're already thinking about that, but I guess we will find out. So any thoughts on calendar year plans as far as like um, FSAs and DCAPs and all, they had the extended time frame to incur claims if you are a non-calendar year plan and all that went through the end of December. So nothing was said about calendar year plans. Do you think there could be any kind of new legislation, something to change that for those plans? It, it does not seem likely that I, I don't see how it could happen before the end of the year. Um, there could be relief maybe in 2021 that somehow, you know, goes back a little bit. I'm not sure I see that as being all that likely. I think what we're going to see is that employers will probably have larger than usual FSA forfeiture balances. And while employers typically would not return funds to employees um, in, in, a, in a year where they had what's called an experience gain, where the, the FSA comes out ahead, they'd roll that forward to a future year. You might see more employers um, wanting to know, well, what if we did want to return some funds here? Because you have a lot of employees who maybe had sizable forfeitures, um, you know, something, something like that. But I don't think we're going to get any legislative help on FSAs, any COBRA subsidy uh, before the end of the year, nothing like that. That's a really good point. Before we go on to other stuff I wanted to talk about for 2021, let's go back to that FSA forfeiture balance because um, there is a certain way that it can be distributed if that's something that someone wanted, an employer wanted to do. So like Stacy said, if you've got an experience gain where your FSA comes out ahead because people weren't having, where they weren't incurring claims to be able to use their FSA funds, then an employer can share, distribute some of that experience gain. But Stacy, can you explain how that works and how it needs to be the same amount and all of that? Right at the end of the FSA plan year, this works for healthcare and dependent care FSAs, the forfeitures minus any administrative expenses is referred to as an experience gain. Sometimes the plan 
comes out ahead. Sometimes it doesn't. In most cases, it's relatively neutral after the, the plan administrative expenses are paid and the employer simply rolls forward that balance to the next year and does the same thing each year. But in, in light of COVID, there may be substantially higher balances in those FSAs that get forfeited. And so we have a larger experience gain at the end of the year. And the rules allow the employer to return it to employees in a uniform manner without regard to utilization. Um, and so meaning you can't just return the money on a dollar for dollar basis to employees who have the forfeitures. Like if I forfeited $500, I get that back and someone else forfeited 2000, they get that back. But you can um, adjust the amount of the refund based on the employee's election. So if an employee elected, say, $2,500, um, you know, they contributed that and they spent it all um, versus someone who contributed $2,500 and forfeited it all, both of those employees would get the same um, rebate get a similar or the same rebate because we wouldn't key it to their utilization. Now, you might have a situation though where a lot of employees are in the same boat and if they're all forfeiting a similar percentage of their accounts, then returning money based on the elected amount would probably be pretty close to the forfeitures. So it, it might actually work out kind of closely or, or, or well for the employees. Um, I'm sure, Sarah, you can help with the numbers in a, in a particular situation of an employer wants to do that. But, uh, um, you know, I know we've had a lot of questions from employers um, regarding what um, what can be done uh, when an employee wants to change the election. Can it be retroactive, which unfortunately it can't. And so I, I know there are going to be more forfeitures this year than in prior years. And that actually helps as far as the question that I had asked about, did you think anything was going to be coming up for those calendar year plans? Because I've been having employers ask questions about, you know, we didn't get any kind of extended time frame for the claim. So what should we do with this? And this is actually a great answer to that about, you know, using that experience gain to um, distribute back. So I digressed a little bit from our, our 2021 topic, but I thought that was important to cover. So back to that topic. Um, okay. The telehealth relief. So back to the telemedicine and the HRHSAs where you can uh, engage in a telemed service without disqualifying your HSA. I've seen a couple things that thought maybe this would become permanent. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I could definitely see it extended. Uh, right now, it, it applies for plan years beginning on or before December 31st of 2021. Um, so we, we do have some time, but it, I could see it getting extended. It, it, did, it did seem pretty easy to do. Um, it doesn't appear to be a, a huge revenue loss for the government. Um, I think a lot of uh, companies might have been doing it anyway. So I would be very hopeful it gets extended, even if there are vaccines available and things like that. Um, and we don't necessarily have the need for the um, 
<laughs> you know, we, we feel more comfortable going to the primary care providers and maybe the IRS doesn't view it as so necessary. Um, it would still be uh, just to make things easier for employers, the way these plans are operated and just to give a little bit of relief in that area to employees. So I, I'm hopeful, but uh, well, we'll have to see. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it would be a good thing, but we will see. Okay, so you addressed the wellness rules a little bit when we were still talking about 2020. So what are you thinking about those? They issued kind of a proposed update to what they're thinking. So will we see finalized rules in 2021? So in 2021, we're likely to see the wellness rules proposed. Uh, earlier this year, they didn't even release any proposed rules. All they did were was have a basically a, an open phone call that discussed um, the direction they're likely to take when proposing rules, which have yet to be issued. So those proposed rules that they were talking about earlier this year, I think will get... Um, in uh, actually early next year, or maybe even sooner, actually, I will share, I did hear that the proposed rules are with OPM, the Office of Personal Management, and they're going there, they are, you know, they have been drafted. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're with OPM getting reviewed. So they, we will probably see them um, at any time. If I know the uh, the, the departments, they'll probably issue them slightly before a major holiday. So uh, who knows, could see them tomorrow. That's funny. That's what I was just thinking. I was You were saying, if you know them, they're going to issue them. I was thinking right before a major holiday. <laughs> mm. I don't know if that's by design, but that's, that is always how it seems to work. So, um, okay. So of course, everybody wants to know, getting back on our 2020 list here. Everybody wants to know what Biden's agenda is. Um, as president-elect and obviously not on the same track as Trump and where he was going, are there things that will experience a major reversal in your opinion, or will it be kind of just a uh, middle of the road? What do you think? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I initially thought that we could expect that many of President Trump's initiatives would be undone by the Biden administration. I'm not sure how, you know, if that'll happen or how quickly that'll happen. I mean, there are certain uh, regulatory changes just by way of example, the expansion of Minimed plans and the individual coverage HRAs. Those are, are fairly, um, kind of uh, in conflict with the ACA, the counter to, to the ACA. And I can see those regulations getting rescinded uh, potentially under a Biden administration, but he might leave a lot of that regulatory stuff in place. And hopefully things like the section 1557 rules, which I don't think a lot of employers maybe aren't aware of them, but um, the Trump administration did issue some rules making it more making it more employer friendly, uh, reducing the administrative burden on plans. And so I'd be hopeful that those regulations in part at least would be upheld. Um, and then, you know, we'll just kind of need to see, um, you know, well, first of all, we, we have a runoff election in January in 
Georgia. We have two runoff elections. So it is theoretically possible that Democrats could flip both of those seats and then have control of the House, slim control of the House and the Senate, because it would be tied 50-50 and the vice president would, it would be the tiebreaker. So assuming the Democrats don't flip both of those seats, which is probably fair to say uh, down in Georgia, then we will see the Republicans retain control of the Senate. And we're not going to get major legislative changes. That's, I think, why the market is getting excited about about it. Um, (laughs) So the Biden administration, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, a lot of the ACA is really implemented by regulation and by executive action. So having that Senate majority might not be all that important to Biden's policy if he wants to do things like, um, you know, maybe re- start funding the navigators again and um things that can be done from a, a regulatory perspective, which are you know not major overhauls. We can't go single payer. Um, we'll see if the Biden administration supports um, the Trump administration's transparency rules. Very interesting two sets of transparency rules, and maybe we'll talk about those two in the future. They probably deserve their own podcast, but we'll see if the uh, Biden administration picks up and defends those recently released Trump um, transparency rules for for plans and for hospitals. Um, If Biden were to take, or the Democrats were to have control of the Senate as well, you'd probably see more legislative changes like um, expanding the ACA's subsidies and maybe allowing employees who have unaffordable family coverage to go get subsidies on the exchanges, something that is not available um, at the moment. Um, And then you could also see another push to get states to expand Medicaid. There's still a a dozen states or so that haven't expanded Medicaid. And um, if they were just to expand Medicaid, we would have, you know, probably 10 million more people covered um, in the, in the country. Yeah those, are definitely, yeah, those are definitely some good thoughts. I've heard um, uh, a few different people talk on this and um, Janet Troutwine from Nehu, she had some really good thoughts. I don't know if you heard her conversation recently, but um, she had some really good thoughts on Biden about being possibly a situation where, like you said, if the those two seats don't flip, then you still have Republican control of the Senate and it's really going to limit what actually comes in. You know, so a lot of people have had in their mind that it's going to be this huge upheaval and that may not be the case. So I guess that election will tell us and time will tell us um, about that. But so similarly, And moving on to the next topic, the Supreme Court hearing about that ACA, uh, the ACA trial that's been going on for, I don't know if it's months or years, I'd say years probably at this point, but um, talk about that and, you know, the outcome that appears to possibly be the case, I guess, if I can even be that bold and and what you're thinking. Yeah, um, it it has been years. The first decision was issued in this case in December of 2018, 
But this is the case, and, and it'll probably be the last time um, it comes before the Supreme Court, but it's the issue of the, of the individual mandate and whether changes made by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017 somehow made the individual mandate unconstitutional. Um, and part of the problem was um, Justice Roberts um, when he originally found the individual mandate the constitutional back in 2012, he did it on the basis that it was a tax. And, he, and he said, well, of course, the government can you know levy taxes. It's not really a, an argument there. And so since the individual mandate functions as a tax, it, it produces some revenue, then we can save it as a tax. And so that's why the individual mandate was constitutional. And so when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came around and zeroed out the individual mandate, and it really didn't do anything else with regard to the ACA um, in, in that regard, um, the argument was, well, hey, now it doesn't provide any revenue to the government. So is it unconstitutional now? And does that mean the whole ACA needs to be found unconstitutional? And, you know, there is a there's a pathway to that. You, you know, a, a very unfriendly court could definitely find um, a basis for that. And so this case has been kicked around. It started at the district court in Texas. The district court said, yes, the uh, individual mandate is unconstitutional and um you know, kind of left it at that and let, and let the parties appeal. They appealed it to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals should have thrown this case out um, due to lack of standing. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but they should have thrown the case out. and Instead, they heard it, and they agreed that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, and then they remanded the case back to the district court to go through and figure out which pieces of the ACA should remain and which pieces would be unconstitutional, which is you know, kind of an absurd exercise. Uh, and so in the meantime, a number of states had to intervene and appeal this case to the Supreme Court because the federal government, who should be defending the case, was in cahoots with the plaintiffs. You know, they agreed with the plaintiffs that the law should be um, repealed, and so they weren't going to defend it. And so you have California leading about 20 other states who are defending the law, and they brought the case to the Supreme Court. And those, so the Supreme Court heard the case November 10th, a week after the election, um, with Amy Coney Barrett, newly seated um, in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's former seat. So they heard oral arguments November 10th, and this is a six to three conservative court at this point. Um, the president having appointed a third of the Supreme Court. Um, they heard oral, oral arguments and they, they focused on three main issues. The, one of them was you know, should we even be hearing this case? Is there any, even any standing to challenge the individual mandate, a mandate by the states and by the two individuals that are part of this lawsuit? Um, you know, do we even have any standing? Um, so to that question, you know, typically when you want to invoke the power of the federal court, you must have a, a case or controversy that results in some damages. 
you, you normally need more harm than none, more financial harm than zero dollars to bring a case to federal court. And these two individuals and, and the state, of course, needed individuals to sue to challenge the individual mandate because the states aren't individuals. And the individuals had a say, you know, despite having zero dollar penalty, we are sometimes we are somehow harmed by the existence of this law. And so the court usually takes issues of standing very seriously, which is why I was a little surprised that the circuit didn't just, you know, dismiss this case. Um, so the, the Supreme Court spent about a third of their time talking about standing and whether they really should be hearing this case or not. Um, and then secondly, they talked about the merits, uh, meaning when you reduce the individual mandate penalty to zero, does it somehow render it unconstitutional? And Roberts, I think the chief justice kind of said it, I'll paraphrase him very loosely. Um, I think he's kind of sick of hearing this case. Um, and he said, you know, let me get this straight. Um, you had a, a mandate that you sued over and it was, it was legal when it had a penalty attached to it. And now um, you've neutered that penalty, you've watered it down at zero dollars. You've made the, the mandate precatory, um, which is a fancy just way of saying it's just recommend a recommendation. Now, you know, we've, we've, change the offending tax and you want us to say now it's unconstitutional it doesn't make a lot of sense um so i think that roberts and he'll get at least one other justice and the conservative justice and then the other three liberal justices to find that there is some way to save the law um, going forward which brings us to severability, that if they're reluctant to just uphold the ACA um, entirely, which is still an option, they could just simply sever the individual mandate from the rest of the law, um, and then it'd be business as usual. And Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh is known for um, kind of being uh, sympathetic to the severability arguments in general in other cases. So, you know, I... I, I think, you know, knowing we know of him, he, he seems a little bit like a bro and he, he might just want to go with Roberts and, you know, want Roberts to like him. So he'll go with him and they'll sever the individual mandate and it'll be business as usual. But one way or another, I do think the law will just continue as is. You probably didn't need a 10 minute diatribe on it, but um, it's an interesting case. We probably won't see it again and we'll probably get um, a decision in the next three months or so. Now, I think that explanation was really helpful because it really walked through well, how we started, where we are, and how we may likely end up. So um, so a lot's happened in 2020, a lot of speculation on 2021, but I think uh, what we've talked about also really makes the theme of this conversation, time will tell. Time will tell for many different reasons what's going to happen next year. So um we'll just be recording more podcasts. So once it, once it is official, we can kind of dive into it and break it down. So, well, thanks, Stacey. This has been really helpful. You've walked us through a lot of information and um, really appreciate your time and doing all of that. You're very welcome. Thanks everyone for joining us. Be sure to listen to one of our other podcasts for another topic. And if you ever have questions, you want to reach out to me, it's Sarah G, S-A-R-A-H-G at LPinsurance.com. Have a great day.